you adopt a different approach to this where you're saying, you know what, every single detected call that I'm getting at the exchange level, I'm going to divert it to a machine to keep the scammers busy, you are immediately and mechanically reducing the profits that the scammers are making. The objective here is to make such an activity in, in so bad shape from a financial point of view, just really disrupting their business model, that it's not going to be worth it anymore. This is KBCast. As a primary target for ransomware campaigns, is security and testing and performance and scalability. We can comply. We can actually automate that. Take that data and use it. Joining me today is Professor Dali Kafar, Executive Director for Macquarie University Cybersecurity Hub and founder and CEO from Apache AI. And today we're discussing defeating phone scams with conversational AI. So Dali, thanks for joining and welcome. A real pleasure, Carissa. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank, thanks for asking. Sometimes, you know, we don't always sort of get to that stage in the interview. So uh, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm excited to have this interview with you today because your topic is pretty relevant, which sort of leads me into my first question. Now, recently there was a scam out of Hong Kong, which you're probably aware of, about an employee who was tricked into thinking it was their boss, but in fact, it was a deep fake impersonating their boss, which resulted in the employee handing over $25 million to the scammer. So the industry was a bit rattled from what I read online. So I think I want to sort of start there. So let's, let's hear your view. Yeah. So this particular one is all about deep fakes and, 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 and voice cloning in a sense, right? And I think deep fakes and voice cloning are those fascinating yet very concerning technologies that we're currently facing. And, you know, with the use of technology, this is something that is coming our way, obviously, with everything AI. So maybe we can start with the whole idea behind deep fakes. And deep fakes are just those synthetic data essentially created using deep learning techniques, right? And most uh, specifically generative adversarial networks that many people would have heard of, which is which are these GANs, right? And so the idea really is that these algorithms would manipulate and replace existing content. And usually these are faces or voices into videos, images, or some sort of audio. And so deep fakes or face deep fakes in particular, they involve replacing a person's face, for example, in a video or someone else's faces. And you could make it appear as if it's a celebrity delivering a speech or, or things like that. The good use of that is probably kind of appealing to lots of us. And so that could be really something around entertainment, memes and, 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 and the like. It could be even really about creating some animation sort of movies, which look a little bit more realistic than just simple cartoons and, and things like that. Well, so the creativity really there is just very limited, if you like. But now, on the other hand, there's this concern, which is, you know, the malicious intent or the malicious use of that. And that could be really just about spreading misinformation, for example, and having this misleading content, sometimes even privacy invasion for some people, creating some potential visual harm and so on and so forth. And that's kind of really capturing the essence of what's really fascinating about them and what's all the potential that are coming from deep fakes and voice cloning, but also at the same time, creating those challenges ahead of us, which is what if they're really used or misused in a sense by some malicious a malicious intention. And, and that's a kind of ethical dilemma we're really dealing with, right? Which is how do we balance this notion of creativity 
freedom of expression in a sense with, with, with preventing harm, right? And we have to navigate the fine line between the use for particular artistic ways, for example, or even more like on the utility of, of the operations and potentially entertainment, but also the use of this technology for deception purposes. And I think obviously scam and scam calls and the like are right in the heart of that sort of deception used by cyber criminals to, to well, essentially deceive many of us as uh, victims and vulnerable people, essentially, to lose, some of the people are losing life savings just, just because of these scammers. Okay, I want to get into the deep fake thing a little bit more in terms of people being scammed, like a lot of money. So there was something recently on Colin Jackio, and it was a lady in Australia that thought she had this boyfriend overseas and, you know, you sort of know the story. I used a deep fake, but it looked pretty fake. So obviously there are degrees of how good a lot of these deep fakes are, but I'm just curious to know, like when they sort of played the video, it didn't look that good at all. So I guess I was kind of shocked that someone did fall for it because the yeah. way in which he was speaking in the video, it didn't look like how someone would normally yeah. speak. So I was sort of surprised by that. So what's your view then on that? Yeah, so so there are many different scenarios there, right? I mean, whether it's really deepfake scam type of uh, category or, or scam in general, right? Like someone really ringing you and it could be really someone you don't know. Or he or she basically could pretend that they are someone or impersonating particular organization and so on. So let's probably explore how it might play out when you do receive some of these calls or when you're really engaged in some of these possible scam plots. So there is an initial contact generally, and this is where the scammer is impersonating uh, someone, potentially high-ranking executive or someone that you would be inclined to, to I don't know, um, just to uh, put it bluntly, to fall in love with or so on, right? And, and that's really generally like social engineering side of things. And these people are really highly skilled in creating and, and manipulating their victims. So the scammers would be using psychological, psychological type of pressure, by, for example, having some urgent request, we need funds for a secret project immediately or something like that. Sometimes they really go for some appeal to loyalty. This is confidential. Don't discuss it with anyone else. Or sometimes they go with some sort of authority with, with their victims. So your job is at stake if you don't comply and things, things like this. Or you really go in, you're, you're facing jail time if you don't, if you don't uh, follow these instructions. And so, yeah, there is this element, um, very, very important element of manipulation tactics that is used there. And so the challenge that you're referring to there are not only about the sophistication of the technology behind deepfakes and voice cloning, right? So it is true that some may not really look very realistic to many of us, even though I have to note that some of the deepfake voices sound remarkably real, right? I mean, technology today has advanced so much that it's really very difficult in, in, in many cases to detect whether this is true or not. And so it's really important. So there is this bit, right? And even if this is really not something that uh, using advanced technology, there, is, there are all these other challenges and all these other manipulation tactics, for example, relating to time pressure, right? Like these urgent requests that bypass some sort of normal verification processes and we are in a rush to, take a, to make a call. There is this element of creating trust with some sort of empathy that is being established between them and their victims. 
And so all of that is creating a, an environment for, for the victims to fall for it, for some of these scams. So it is very hard to kind of really look at some of these examples and just try to get with just one factor that might have contributed to the fact that someone fell victim for some of these scams. Um, and I think that's really like the crux of the problem here, right? Like the scammers and these cyber criminals are so creative to the point that we can probably only hope that there has to be a much better way to defeat the scammers and defeat this whole business model because the scammers are really into a business model. Like the scam industry is a very lucrative industry by adopting different approaches other than just the education, right? Or some of the legislation or some of the current technologies. We're just definitely not doing enough today by just informing users that, or end users that they may fall for scam calls, or we're definitely not doing the right thing or definitely not all the necessary things by just considering that legislation will put in, will put the scammers away from malicious activity. There gotta be something else that has to be done. And that's the pretty much, I think, what we're trying to do with Apache.ai. Okay, I wanna jump into the manipulation side of things. And now, are you sort of saying, so hypothetically, let's go back to this romance, deep fake sort of scam. The, the scammer obviously had the person by manipulating them. So therefore they were sort of seeing past in terms of the quality of the deep fake. Cause again, going back to it, I looked at it. I'm like, it clearly looks fake. However, I obviously wasn't the person being manipulated and sort of being involved in this story and the romance part. So to your earlier point, would you say on the manipulation front, people therefore are leveraging that in order to, of course, scam their victims However, when I looked at the actual quality of the video, it didn't look great. So are you sort of saying that the manipulation side of things is carrying a lot of the weight in some of these deep fakes? Because again, when I looked at it, it looked clearly fake. But again, like when you're already sort of in that mindset and you think it's real, maybe it is easier to sort of turn a blind eye to certain things. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably, um, you know, one of those perspectives where your whole judgment is being completely biased towards some other manipulation in some other context that has happened beforehand, right? And so that's really the difficulty here in assessing and trying to understand how important that social engineering side of things is, right? So one of the things that we realized and in fact actually measured through thousands of different conversations between scammers and possible victims is this element of uh, manipulation and playing on humans' emotions, right? That the scammers are becoming very skilled at. And to the point that, again, earlier I was mentioning scam being an industry, to the point that there is actually, there are very often divisions that are just about having the right people to talk to the victims. And so these are people that are even being trained to play on humans' emotions and people and, and humans' sentiments. So some time back, we've done um, a piece of research that looked really at what we call the four different stages of scam conversations. And what we find out essentially was that typically a scam conversation or scam plot really kind of is composed of four main stages. The first one is what we are calling this element of trust establishment. And this is just more around the idea that the scammer very initially, when engaging with their victims, they would be trying to 
establish some form of trust and confidence between themselves and their victims by being very friendly, by being very cooperative, showing some sympathy and essentially being very like the type of persons that you'd immediately like because, well, why not? They look really good or they sound really good. And then the second stage is where really the whole plot is being deployed, basically. And this is where things differ from one scam category to the other. So if it's really something where they're pretending to be an authority, for example, police or tax officers and so on, they will show some form of authority uh, and they'll become serious and they'll be coming really talking about threats. If you don't obey, if you don't follow their instructions, if it's really more on the romance side of things, this is where they'll, they'll be trying to start talking to the emotions of people and start talking about possible family members or possible life expectations and so on and so forth. And the third is stages is more about leveraging that second stage. And then it becomes really about some elements of finances, right? Or some elements of actions that they need you to take. And this is crucial, right? And this is the phase where most people would be taking a, uh, making a call or whether they fall for the scam or not, right? And the third phase is where most people will find out that they are really talking to a scammer if they didn't detect that earlier. And this is the phase where the scam victims will essentially be in a, what we call a point of no return. Because if you do believe that third stage and if you didn't really recognize that now you're considering you're talking to a scammer, that means basically that no matter what would happen later, you're basically falling and you probably would be making that payment or, or making that transfer and so on and so forth. So the third one is crucial. And then the fourth is obviously all the instructions that are more on the operational side of things. Like this is my bank account. This is what, how much you, I need you to transfer, et cetera, et cetera. So back to your original question, Carissa, I think, again, there's a lot that can go into this manipulation from the scammers. And there's a lot of sophistication. It is not only the misuse of technology. There's also all the social engineering side of things. And this is where humans are really very bad at, right? Or like we're weak in a sense because we are all humans and we just can fall for some of these manipulations just because, well, that's, that's the way we are built. Humans do have different behavior and humans sometimes are just more trustworthy than others. And we like to think that we can trust humans from time to time. And it seems that the, the scammers or these cyber criminals are completely using that, well, to, to perform and to undertake their illegal activities. So let's just go over again. So we've got number one is trust. And then the second structure of how these scammers sort of go about their business. Yeah. So, so the stages are essentially put in place where the element of establishing trust the second is really like the plot, which is the story, the narrative that they're trying to deploy. The third is really the structure of the plot, right? This is really kind of unpacking the narrative and the details of the narrative. And the fourth is really the operational side of things, right? This is where the payments are supposed to be made. So the second uh, stage, which is the narrative, is generally kind of important, but this is where most people would recognize that this is just a scam. Right? So the scammer is now pretending to be a tax agent. That's an element of authority that they're trying to set up. And most people would just recognize, hey, why the ATO is calling me and I didn't really have anything wrong. Or this is where most of us would just recognize this is nonsense type of narrative. Those who don't do that are, you know, very likely to fall victims in particular because in the third stage is just about the 
unpacking the the way that things should be done and talking about the numbers basically right and this is this is where they would be essentially referring to how much money they would like you to help them with and so on and so forth so yeah very generic sort of stages that that you'd expect most of us would recognize but it's done in such a subtle way and again the time pressure the elements of really having you to be under that condition that you don't even take the time to think about things twice. Um, and, and you add to that potentially some psychological pressure from them, like the one that I was referring to, something being very confidential, not discussing it with anyone else, something being very urgent, uh, the fear of consequences, right? Your, your job is at stake if you don't comply with this or you're going to go to jail. And you have really a very solid combo for some of us falling victims for this. Yeah, this is really interesting. So, okay, I want to get into this a little bit more. So let's go back to the plot. So the second part, the narrative building. So obviously some people do this in a little bit more detail, a little bit better. They're a little bit more crafty with how they're pre presenting their narrative. But like, for example, let's just go back to basic scams on, I don't know, Facebook Marketplace. Like some of these people's narratives, Dali, are so bad, but yet people still fall for it. It's like that story is so far-fetched. So this is the part yeah. where I don't get, like, when a story is so far-fetched, people are still falling mm. for it. So it's like, oh, I'm trying to sell you a couch online. It's like, oh, but I can't come and get it. I'm going to get my sister's dog's friend's neighbor to come and collect it. So it's like, it just doesn't mm. add up. I know this is sort of a little bit different to the deep fake sort of scenario and the voice cloning, but I'm just trying to paint a picture here on the scamming front, on the narrative building, that some of them are just weaker. Yeah. So, I mean, there are just maybe different types of business model, if you like, for the, sca for the scammers and for this, for this cyber criminal activity, right? So just think about it as ways of really casting a very wide net, no matter how the quality of the scam is, right? And so that's just one approach that these criminals just apply or take. And the idea is that I'm going to really try as hard as possible and at a scale that is just getting me potentially one in a thousand people to believe me, maybe even less than that, right? And the idea is that if I really talk to potentially thousands of people and try to deploy my scam, one would potentially be hooked, right? Just the, uh, the general concept. Other sophistication or other sophisticated type of scam calls are a little bit more targeted in the sense that they put probably the time and effort in producing something very plausible. They go through the deep fake and the voice cloning type of perspective of it as a technology solution, if you like, which is actually quite paradoxical to talk about here. But that's really like how the industry works, right? It's just a matter of balancing some form of investment from them, whether it's really time or money, infrastructure essentially, and technology, or just go with cheap ways of doing it, but reaching out to a vast majority of possible victims and hoping that they may, they may get a victim to fall for it. So this is the sort of things that you're experiencing there or you're describing, right? So some are a little bit more targeted and others are a little bit more like, let's cast a very wide net, no matter how, how bad our narrative might sound, we may just find that one victim that we're after. So going back to the Hong Kong company, so the employee that transferred the $25 million, which is a lot, would you sort of say that was quite well thought out? Because that's a lot of money for someone to just be scammed out of. And I want to get into a little bit more because is it just going to be too easy nowadays to sort of scam businesses out of money? 
No, I don't think it is, right? But but look, it's always just that view that scammers are getting more and more sophisticated. That is a fact that we have to recognize, right? Just as we are getting also more and more sophisticated with the technology and, and the solutions that we're using on day-to-day operations and in our daily lives with the digital society where we are in, the misuse of such technology is getting also in the hands of cyber criminals. And this is something that we just have to understand and realize and, and recognize. And so we will be facing more sophisticated type of scammers and type of scam plots. The, the Hong Kong anecdote case is, I think, illustrative of what could happen, might not happen on a daily basis, but it's just, again, one big indicator of the level of sophistication that we might be dealing with on a daily basis. This is not to say that I think we as consumers and, and customers of some telecommunication providers, and we all have mobile phones and, and so on, would be falling for some of these scams because I think most people and many of us now are more and more educated about, about the risks. But I think we just have also to, to be aware that we will probably be in a position or in a, in a world where it's going to be very complicated to decipher and distinguish between what's real and what's not. And that's obviously a massive challenge, not only from a scam perspective, but just like I said earlier, from the perspective of what is really genuine information and what is really fake information. That's uh, really a challenge that our whole society is facing. And again, it's not an easy, it's not an easy challenge to address. So I want to talk a little bit more about the responsibility. So going back to some of your earlier comments and people listening to this are probably thinking, well, who does the responsibility sit with? Now, depends on who you ask, depends on who you speak to. So let's just look at a scenario. Maybe let's use the Hong Kong example. And should it be the employee, the business, the telco, the social media giants, like the big tech giants? Because I've I'm seeing conflicting opinions of people out there. So it's like, oh, well, Facebook should be blocking all of these deep fakes. But it's like, but how, that's so hard to do. And I get it from a consumer lens, but like things can't just work like that necessarily. Like I get the view, but it's not as easy to implement. And then like, if I look at it from a telco perspective, well, that's going to be hard to sort of to reduce people voice cloning and then scamming people out of money. Like it's not such an easy fix. So I'm curious then to hear your thoughts. And I know the responsibility should be everyone, but if you had to sort of weight it, where do you think that weight sort of sits? Well, look, I think we're already doing a lot in in the way that we're trying to protect against scam. And if we take just the scam call as an example, because there are many different channels and and, uh, different vectors bringing scam activity to us, unfortunately, but let's just consider for a moment scam calls as one of the, I think by majority of the total loss to scammers is the one vehicle, the one major vehicle of how scammers are reaching out to to potential victims. Telecommunication providers today are doing a lot, right? In detecting and blocking scam calls. Just to give you a sense of what that means, in, in Australia, for example, major telecommunication providers TPGT, Optus, and Telstra would probably be blocking around 2.5 billion calls a year. And that's really a number from two years ago. So pretty much the the updated numbers would probably be much higher. In US, it's even on a different scale, much higher scale 
T-Mobile only is blocking around 45 billion calls a year. That's around 1,300 calls a second. Just to give you a sense of how much is being done to kind of reduce this massive threat and the impact of this massive threat on the customers. Now, it is definitely not enough because lots of them are just getting through the nets and they're still making really high profits. And so the numbers are just suburban from that end. We do know that across the years, the trend is just too much more profits and much more losses made to scammers. That is a fact, actually. In, by the billions in Australia and by the hundreds of billions in US, just to give you a sense of the scale. I think the responsibility is a shared one, right? And so there is a lot that is being done today by trying to protect phone service users from scammers. Like we said earlier, we're trying to educate users, sharing best practices, informing individuals about the risks, informing them about how they may or may, uh, how they may detect some of these forms of scams. The telecommunication providers are doing um, a lot in trying to detect, filter and block some of these scam calls. Today, you have many of these end user solutions, right? Some mobile apps to detect scams, some notifications based on the caller's reputation and so on and so forth. And then you also have the scam intelligence part of it, right? Which is how do we really collect data that tries to inform us about this threat? And how do we really make sure that we have enough comprehensive data that makes it easier to to proactively defend against scam calls. And one of the problems, by the way, here is that we are considering some very reactive way of defending against scams. So scam intelligence, for example, is just reliant on crowdsourcing victim reporting. That's just relying on you and I that have taken the time to report this to possible government agencies or, you know, to, to some of our, of what we think are impersonated organizations saying, hey, I just received a call. This sounds like a scam. And, and, and the conversation just ends that. So most of the time, the intelligence is really uh, only crowdsourced and happens post-scam losses or post-scam uh, reports, which is, which is not ideal. There got to be a much, much better way of doing this. And one of the uh, things that I believe are just critical and crucial to implement as soon as possible is just moving away from this notion of being very reactive to the problem in trying to adopt a proactive scam defense against the scam threat. And, and one of them is really to disrupt and deter the scammers from this activity in the first place, right? So rather than just waiting and trying to block them, you would like to respond and prevent scams from happening in the first place, hoping or at, free, at least with the objective of guaranteeing that your network, for example, is free of scam calls, but also that your intelligence is really very real time and that it doesn't really come too late after the losses are made. And that's really the notion of being very proactive. What does that mean? It's essentially taking an approach where you're trying in, again, a very proactive way in hurting the scammers and fighting back, if you like, and essentially what I call breaking their business model. Today, it's extremely easy for scammers to to get to these activities because, well, on the technological aspect, it's very simple to execute. On the social aspect, as we talked about, it's kind of mimicking real life stories on plays on humans' emotions and fears. And again, as we said, targets the most vulnerable amongst us. And also the monetary incentives and the financial challenges for scammers are just too great, right? It's just a high gain to cost ratio for scammers 
And so why not, right? It's a lucrative business model for them. So I think the solution has to come from a much more proactive way of defeating them at their own game. And so we talked at the beginning at this voice cloning way of doing things from their end, from the scammer's point of view, to deceive people. So the general approach that I'm really advocating for here is why not deceiving the scammers themselves? And again, this is what Apati set as a mission, which is breaking the whole business model of scammers by getting them to think that they are talking to some possible victims um, while they're in fact talking to some chatbots that are so realistic that they are mimicking possible naive victims and uh, the scammers would end up talking for minutes and not if not hours to bots without making a buck by talking to real victims. Wow. Okay. That's really interesting because I was going to literally just ask you that question around to your commentary, defeating them at their own game. And I want to press into that a little bit more. And we've sort of talked about this throughout the interview today, Dali, around, okay, well, reducing it would be, okay, the user awareness, number one. Number two, the telcos. So let's get into that a little bit more. What does that sort of then look like in more fidelity? Yeah. So like I said today, telecommunication providers do block scammers and scam calls by the billions, right? What happens is that as soon as you do block them, you detect them in the first place, then actually you filter and you block them. Well, all the scammer has to do is to essentially place another 5,000 calls in the next minute that they have been blocked. And so you keep going with that sort of game of blocking and then making calls more and more in an automated way with that perspective that we have today, which is they ultimately reach to an actual victim and they're making high profits. And that's the reality of today. What we are proposing is something that is completely different, which is changing the paradigm and essentially look at the blocking type of approach that exists today as an opportunity to divert those blocked calls to distract the scammers from reaching to actual victims. And so ultimately what happens if you use this particular mechanism is that you're just creating what I like to call a black hole, a time black hole for scammers. The scammers would be spending a couple of minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes talking to a machine. And those two minutes are essentially two minutes that are not used by the scammers to place additional calls. And so the immediate impact of this is well, a much, much lower profit for scammers made through the day, through the month and through the year. So to the point that this whole business model becomes not, becomes not so lucrative for them. And this is why really like the big mission that we're setting to ourselves is to break the business model. So that is really a very important component of how to really divert blocked calls from the telcos into machines that are really serving the purpose of wasting the scammer's time in such a way that the profits they're making are minimized, if any at all. So that's on one end, right? But the most important bit with this, I, I, I presume, is if you end up having scammers talking to machines, thinking that they're actual victims, this is an amazing opportunity for you to basically extract as much intelligence from them as possible so that you're really prepared with a very accurate and very timely intelligence that you can share across the board with customers to impersonated businesses, 
to impersonated government agencies and so on saying, look, there is currently a campaign that is trying to aim to deceive your customers and your consumers. And this is exactly all what you should know about this potential scam, scam campaign. And so you're basically defeating the scammers at their own game because you are now all of a sudden a step ahead of them and being in a position to inform the, the population and to inform the consumers about what is really going to be deployed at them. And so all of a sudden, we're just in a position that we know exactly what the scammers are going to be telling uh, their victims about, and we can really defend against that. It's just like if I ring you and I tell you, hey, Carissa, tell you what, there is someone who's going to really call you and pretend to be X, Y, Z, and they want to really they will be telling you that they need $25,000 for whatever reason. Please be aware that this is definitely a scam call. So the next moment that you'll be receiving that call, you probably all you're probably going to do is have a good laugh at that scammer and hang up. And so that's immediately reducing the number of victims to these scammers. Okay, so just so I have this straight. So basically what you're saying is diverting the blocked calls to this chatbot, for example, that then is going to chew up all their horsepower, all their time with that horsepower they're not going to be then using to scam other victims. Is that correct? That's correct. That's exactly what it is. What you're doing is basically you're distracting them from reaching to actual victims. So what about the calls, though, that aren't blocked and they do get through? Because, yes, I mean, I don't pick up any calls that I don't know. So sometimes when I'm calling someone that probably doesn't have my number, I text them to say, hey, like, not a scammer, like, it's me, KB. Obviously, I get a response then, but typically I don't answer, especially like landline numbers because normally it is a scammer or something of that nature. But what about the ones that do get through? Is it just going to mean that, yes, of course, there's still going to be people that are impacted, but you're trying to reduce the overall impact? Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, but the beauty of the way that you'd be redirecting the blocked calls and distracting those scammers by having them to talk to machines is that they will have very little time, if any time at all to place these other calls in the first place. So what will happen from this particular approach is that you will be mechanically reducing the number of calls that the scammers are making to the telecommunication infrastructure in the first place, right? It's just a mechanical effect. They don't have the time because they're engaged and thinking that they're talking to real victims. And so basically they have zero time to make and place these additional calls that might reach to actual victims. So the implication is just immediately a reduced number of calls that are made to, to us as consumers. Now, you always have those calls potentially that we get through, and the idea is to reduce them as much as possible. But most importantly, I think, is just the understanding that lots of the current calls that end up being received by us as consumers are unsuccessful calls for the uh, scammers anyway, right? So the current situation for proportion of scam calls, lots of them are detected at the exchange, like we said, right, blocked by the telcos. A good proportion of that would also be ending in a situation where the targets us hanging up quickly because we just immediately realize that these are scam calls. Others would be just where the target speaks at length, right, and we don't believe them, and so we hang up again. But, a, you know, a minority of that is, is going to be successful scam calls. And this is where the scammers are making a lot of profit, right? It's a game of numbers. Now, if you adopt something, a different approach to this, where you're saying, you know what? Every single detected call that I'm getting at the exchange level, I'm going to divert it to a machine to keep the scammers busy 
you are immediately and mechanically reducing the profits that the scam call, the scammers are making. And so the objective here is to make such an activity in, in so bad shape from a financial point of view, just really disrupting their business model, that it's not going to work. It's not going to be worth it anymore. And you ultimately hope that only um, a few minority of people would be playing this game. So in terms of where do we sort of go from here now as an industry? Because as we are aware, these sort of scams are creeping through. People are being scammed, whether it's money, whether it's their own personal money as well, not just businesses. So what do you, how do you sort of see things sort of panning out? Like people are already worried about deep fakes for political reasons and monetary reasons now as well. But with what you've spoken about, which makes sense, but again, like this is not ubiquitous yet. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts and, and your view moving forward. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, in general, the current ways we're doing things are not working. So definitely we need different paradigms. That's a fact, right? doesn't mean that we'll just move away from the, the need for businesses to, to stay vigilant, of course, right? We talked about the impact of scam calls, the impact of deep fakes, financial losses can be substantial. The reputation damage also can be really quite important, right? And some of these institutions there and some of these organizations um, and employees of organizations who fell for some of these scam calls are just making it really tough for some of the reputation for some organizations. And that affects, by the way, investors' confidence sometimes. And, and then we've got everything that is really around the regulation and, and the regulators becoming a little bit more conscious of the need to increase the scrutiny there, which is obviously something that is interesting and, and, and quite important to happen. But some, at some stage, it also means that there are a lot of, there, is a, there, is less, there are less potential applications and less potential benefits to be made out of some technology to be deployed. And this is just about that fine line between finding the utility of some technology and then just being aware that the technology can be misused. We have to be, remain vigilant. That's a fact. Continuing that process of educating the consumers and educating the employees, part of the, if we are within organizations, adopt robust sort of verification processes, by the way, to prevent falling victim to, to deepfake scams. This is one of the, potentially one of the things that we should really be implementing as, as a day-to-day -day sort of procedure, by the way, within organizations and businesses. Perhaps there are really ways there where we could try to implement some form of protocols within organizations. So it's very clear that something is not following that protocol. And so it might be really a, a scam. And so as the technology evolves, I think our defenses should also evolve in a sense. Deepfakes are, are here to stay, I believe, right? When, and it's just a way of us really getting the technology to defend against the misuses, but also human behavior to kind of be aware of that. Or us humans, sorry, our consumers be aware of that possibility to misuse the technology. And so we have to evolve and our behavior should really evolve in a way that makes the technology of compelling use rather than it being something that is quite threatening. So Dali, do you have any closing comments or final thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with today? Oh, look, I think we're just in that fascinating perspective of the, the move of technology today. I'm sure many of us would really recognize that some, sometimes we even have the feeling that the technology is moving too fast, right? And we're thinking there are all these lovely and amazing use cases, but there are all these possible misuses again, just as we said, and there are all these sort of concerns that things can get out of hand, pretty much the current debate about AI, right? So we have to treat 
carefully to prevent their misuse and protect ourselves and others from harm. I think awareness is very important, but research and responsible development are obviously very crucial in this evolving landscape. And the answer is not just about finding our way through policy or through legislation, which is again, very important, but I think it's just the innovation side of things that can get us into that really sweet spot where we're quite comfortable with the use of technology while also being in a safe and trustworthy spot. This is KBcast, the voice of cyber. Thanks for tuning in. For more industry-leading news and thought-provoking articles, visit kbi.media to get access today. This episode is brought to you by Merckset, your smarter route to security talent. Merckset's executive search has helped enterprise organizations find the right people from around the world since 2012. Their on-demand talent acquisition team helps startups and mid-sized businesses scale faster and more efficiently. Find out more at merksec.com today.